Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. This is what a harpsichord sounds like. And this is what a harpsichord maker sounds like. I'm Ed Wright, and I build harpsichords in the historic area here at Colonial Williamsburg. For an audience that can only hear us and not see us, yeah. can you try to describe a harpsichord? What does it look like? How big is it? Well, by our time in the middle decades of the 18th century and being an English culture, uh, as Williamsburg was, there really are two forms that a harpsichord mechanism could be found. One would be a large, grand model that would look a little bit like a grand piano. You're sitting at the keyboard and the strings run straight out to you and it's much the same sort of harp shape that a piano possesses. What I actually build though is a much smaller, more compact form that's called a spinet. It still has that harpsichord plucking action, but everything's compacted and if you've got an overhead view, the profile of the instrument looks like an angel's wing. So you still have a bit of a harp shape, but things have been shortened, things have been made smaller. And you might look at these little bentside spinets, as they were called, uh, as being a, oh, a counterpart to our upright piano. Smaller, more compact, cheaper. This way more people have access to a type of keyboard instrument without having to you know, bankroll their entire lifestyle in order to get one of these large ones. We'd be talking, oh, the difference oh, a large instrument compared to a spinet might be costing in the 18th century anywhere six seven, eight times what one of the little spinets would cost. So the little spinets that I build in the shop um, are definitely a bargain, guaranteed. The large harpsichords could easily get seven, maybe eight feet long. The little spinets that I build are six-footers on average. And uh, with my spinets running six feet, they may run also perhaps oh, about two feet wide. Uh, just because they are kind of, com everything's compacted and angled to give you uh, just a, a smaller package. And the decorative way. motifs can be very elaborate, both inside and outside. Oh, very much so. Now, the English were very fond of decorating their harpsichord cases with woodwork, usually veneers and decorative inlaid borders. They'll do this on the large harpsichords, and they'll do this also on the spinets. There'll even be decoration uh, inside the cases, just the little area of the case wall that, that is just above where the strings and the soundboard are located will have sometimes, sometimes something very simple, like just one single line of a light-colored wood uh, on a black background. Sometimes they're beautiful patterned you know, rectangles with borders and herringbone and banding work. So they come in a variety of decorative motifs. Then, of course, if you expand beyond the English tradition, oh my goodness, uh, Flemish harpsichords that were made on the continent. Uh, they would decorate them with uh, uh, printed papers. I like to say they're kind of wallpapering the harpsichords a bit. <laughs> so, uh, and then French harpsichords are, will have gilts and they'll have beautiful paintings done on the lids and on the soundboards as well. So these are treated, at that level, these are treated as much as works of art as they are musical and, and sonic pieces. Yeah. Who would have had a harpsichord? I would say that if you were a successful middling person, either, say, here in Virginia running a, a middling-level plantation, or if you were a businessman or businesswoman here in the city, you would have the means 
financially, and certainly I think as long as you're minding your financial affairs appropriately, you'd have good credit to be able to get a hold of one. And I would, that's an interesting point, that's an interesting notion as to who can get these, because um, today, of course, we're surrounded you know, by music. You know, when, we, when we're put on hold, we're listening to music. When we're in the doctor's office, there's music in the atmosphere. We're saturated with the stuff now. And of course, we even carry the stuff in our pockets, you know, gigabytes of music now. Of course, this obviously was not the case in the 18th century. But because of that, um, music and musical instruments, I think, loom very large in the scheme of things for many people. It's one of the, it's one of the few sources of entertainment that you have. People who don't have access to buying an instrument or a harpsichord will sometimes make one for themselves. You have a large folk tradition in just about every culture where this is happening. Because if you don't play an instrument, or if you don't have an instrument, or if you don't sing, or if you don't hum, the 18th century, as a result, you have no music. And so music has a little bit of an extra special significance for them, which I guess, as a result, musical instruments loom a little larger in the scheme of things for them. We talked about who would have owned a harpsichord. Right. Can you tell me who would have played a harpsichord during our colonial period? Oh, it, I guess in the most refined of circles, it was often the, the, considered the appropriate instrument for women. Um, a woman basically being able to play the harpsichord. Her arms are displayed gracefully. She cuts a very good figure, looks good, especially if she's single and wants to make a good impression on some of the men in the room. This might work possibly well. Um, but you find, uh, of course, men who will play keyboard instruments uh, as well. So while we tend to think sometimes of the instruments as being, you know, sort of some are more for women, you know, appropriate for women, some are more appropriate for men, um, you can see, um, especially with the harpsichords, that it's, it's uh, for both genders, for both genders, without a doubt. What makes the harpsichord unique among instruments? Well, for the first part, of course, is that uh, of the of the keyboard instruments, it has quite a bit of age, you know, an honorable, very long and honorable history. Um, we can trace harpsichords back to oh, maybe the mid fourteen hundreds if we go to picture examples, and I think the oldest one still surviving is the from the late fourteen hundreds, and then we have examples of them from that point on up until our own age. Um, I think, of course, the fact that the character of the sound is so distinctive because of that plucking action. Um, if you compare it to a modern piano, which has this deeper, more robust kind of tone, and of course also with a piano having a hammer action to strike the strings, the piano has a little bit of an edge on the harpsichords in the fact that when you press the keys harder, the strings are hammered harder and it makes a louder sound. So you have loudness and softness controlled note for note. The plucking action of the harpsichord doesn't allow for that, which is probably one thing that led to its eventual demise uh, uh, toward the end of the 18th century in favor of the piano. Music and music making is just simply heading in some different directions that it's just very difficult for the harpsichord, lacking that subtle extra expressiveness to, that it just simply can't uh, keep up with. And so pianos will become the order of the day. But I should uh, mention as well, too, that it's not a situation where harpsichords um, evolved into pianos. Charles Darwin doesn't have anything to do with this, okay? So pianos actually were a formal invention around the year 1700 in Italy. 
Um, it was not the first attempt to try to make a hammer action keyboard instrument. But they come very early, and it takes a while for the pianos to gain traction. It's not a situation where suddenly, oh my goodness, we have hammer action keyboards, pianos, and everybody goes crazy about these things and forgets about harpsichords. Oh no, it takes decades for the piano to gain even, you know, an equal footing with the harpsichords. People don't drop the harpsichords and that bright plucking action just because these pianos are now around. What is it that you love about this instrument? What keeps you coming to work every day? Well, first of all, I like to talk about them a lot. And so having the teaching aspect, I suppose, if you want to call it that, with our visitors that come to the shop every day is, is, is always uh, a pleasure. Um, it's a big project that I like to say is full of little projects you know, that have a beginning, middle, and an end, and then it all comes together into the, the final package. So I, I kind of like the variety uh, of that as well. But being able to produce something that obviously is not just there to admire with the eyes, but also produces such a pleasurable you know, sound, which is music. And music, I think, touches all of us. Even for those people who think they don't appreciate it very well, I think it still touches us you know, as well. And that's, that's, that's what I like about this so much. Ed, it's been great having you. Thanks so much for coming by today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And where can people come see these harpsichords being reconstructed today? Look for me uh, at the Anthony Hay Cabinet Shop on Nicholson Street. It's a real distinctive place. We've got the main shop, and then we have a wing which is built over a ravine with a flowing stream uh, underneath it. You can't miss us. So please come by. We'll be glad to talk to you. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often, we'll post more for you to download and hear.